Hi there, I'm Ben Pierce, and welcome to the Elevated You podcast, the podcast all about helping you in the tech world develop your professional skills. Each episode, we share the top tips, failures, and lived experiences of people thriving in the same world as you. I'm so glad you're here. So let's get going. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Elevated You podcast. I think we've got another really interesting episode for you this time. Today, we're talking about neurodiversity. And today, our guest is the CEO of Differing Minds. Now, she spends her time running neurodiversity training for organisations, delivering keynote speeches and and champions making environments neuro-inclusive. So, please welcome to the podcast, Jess Meredith. Oh, thanks, Ben. It's really good to to be here. Can't wait to chat. No, it's brilliant. So thank you so much for, for taking the time uh, to be with us. Now, I wonder for everybody that's listening in internet land, um, could you tell us a little bit about what your role is now and, and what your background is? Of course. Um, so yeah, as you said, I run an organisation called Differing Minds, which is a a social enterprise, a not-for-profit social enterprise, and we work in workplaces, different types of organisations, public sector, private sector. We work in schools. We basically work anywhere that will have us to talk about neurodiversity. So we go in and run training. We do uh, inspirational talks. We um, do some consulting, coaching, various things that encourage, and we'll get on to what neurodiversity is, I'm sure, but um, encourage people to be more inclusive of um people who are neurodivergent so people who are autistic have ADHD dyslexia dyspraxia a whole host of differences Um, and I came to that because I've always been interested in inclusion Um, I grew up in Brighton and um, it's a pretty inclusive place to be not perfect but it's pretty good and when I started my my first job out of university I realized it wasn't really like that Um, and actually not everybody thought the same way I did so I always sort of on the side did things around inclusion um, and I and I was working in a whole host of different areas um, because I, I kept changing jobs as a result of my unidentified ADHD, it would seem. And so I worked in kind of consulting, technology, marketing strategy, e-commerce, you name it, I've probably worked in it. And, um, and then I decided to set up Differing Minds when I um, realized that my daughter was autistic and led me down this path to understand so much more about our different brains, the way that we see the world. And I wanted to share that with everybody. Thank you for sharing that. And it's brilliant to have you with us. Now, one thing that I wanted to say, um, and we talked about this just before we we pressed record, um, was, um, so this is a topic that I don't know loads and loads about um, by any means. So if I use any clumsy language, um, um, Please do let me know because I'd love to learn. Um, so full license to <laughs> thank you. To correct me if I use any in any clumsy use clumsy language, and I just kind of think I'd rather have this conversation, even though I'm a bit worried that I might be clumsy and you know and how I come across, just because it's an important conversation to have. So full license to correct me. <laughs> oh, thank you, Ben. Well, I really appreciate it because. Um, as I said just before, it doesn't happen for everybody. Some people would rather protect themselves than actually learn about, you know, some of the, the terms that we say that aren't appropriate. Um, and I, 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 from my perspective, like whenever people are speaking to me, they're in a safe environment to learn. That's what I'm all about. Because, you know, years ago, I didn't know. I was using, you know, terms that 
are ableist um, and derogatory. And so it's just, yeah, I appreciate the the opportunity to talk about it in a non-offensive, non, it's not, I wouldn't be calling you out. I would just talk about it. So so shall we start with um, perhaps then the, the, the basics of neurodiversity? So, you know, w- what would that be? And can you start to, to educate us? Yeah, of course. So neurodiversity is basically a concept that says all of our brains are different. So we all exist, anybody with a brain, a human brain, all exists under the umbrella of neurodiversity. And that's a really important part of this concept because a lot of people... Um, there's a big misconception that neurodiversity is something that impacts some people and not others, or that you have neurodiversity and that's not, that's not correct. We are all under the neurodiversity umbrella. Um, It's just that for some people, um, our brains are more fundamentally different to others. So you have the kind of more typical makeup of, um, you know, neurology um, and the kind of more common, uh, more predominant neurotypes. And then you have the ones that are less common. And so, um, for the purpose of the neurodiversity movement, which is a movement that is celebrating all of our different brains, um, there's no right or wrong brain, there's no kind of normal, abnormal brain, it's just that we're all different. It's useful to have a categorization that separates those of the more predominant neurotypes and those of the less predominant. And the more predominant is is most generally termed as neurotypical. So you would be a neurotypical person if you don't have a a neurological difference. And then neurodivergent for those that do. So neurodivergent includes people who, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, are autistic, have ADHD, Tourette's syndrome, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia. I could go on. There is lots. It's a non-exhaustive list. Um, And there's a lot of debate, actually, about what goes in and what goes out. Um, There are no rules. No one has the final say in that. And from my perspective, I don't think we should really worry about it. If someone wants to identify as being neurodivergent, let them. Um, This really is about how we actually accommodate for all of our different brain types. Um, So that's kind of what it is. We all exist under this kind of huge neurodiversity umbrella. And then there are these sort of two categories. Um, And what's happened is the majority of our processes and the ways that we um, work um, and the way that we communicate has all been developed with neurotypical people in mind Um, and so the neurodiversity movement really is about trying to create acceptance for neurodivergent people as well um, and make sure that we are all adjusting and accommodating what we're doing to support those people Um, and if it's okay I just want a quick note on language because it's so important and it's such a, a topic of debate at the moment in the community so The majority of people, a lot of people in the community like the terms neurodivergent and neurotypical, but it's not universal. And I think it's really important to respect everybody's views on what their preferred language is within the neurodivergent community. I don't think it's for neurotypical people to be saying you should and shouldn't use those terms. But within the neurodivergent community, some people don't like that term. They prefer to say they are neurodiverse or um, in the neurominority or neurodistinct or neurospicy is one that is gaining a lot of popularity at the moment as well. So, but there's real um, kind of pros and cons to all of those different terms. And, you know, I'm not sure that we'll ever find one that works for absolutely everybody. But generally speaking, neurodivergent, neurotypical is, is quite commonly used. And, and is, that, um, is that true globally? So I was in the US last week and we were having a discussion and it was actually about visual aids and, you know, um, contrast ratios and that kind of stuff in slides and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, the people I was talking with didn't really know the term neurodiversity. Um, so I needed to explain it. And so I wondered, is you know, is this a very British term or is this a global term? So 
it um it is a global term but our understanding is um very different depending on where you are in the world so the movement okay. is kind of at different stages i would say um so the okay. term neurodiversity was coined actually by an australian sociologist called judy singer um it is used um a lot in the uk now i think we are quite uh, we have a long way to go don't get me wrong but comparatively we're reasonably progressive in, in our bubble of, of, of neurodiversity advocates. Um, the US actually is quite prominent with it as well. Um, but, and then Australia, but I would say other than that, actually there's, there's quite a lot to do to move the neurodiversity movement on and for people to understand language. But it's, it's actually very difficult when you're a neurodiversity advocate, you, you spend a lot of time with other neurodivergent people um, and you're talking about this all the time to people that are ready to listen. Uh, but actually when you step out of that bubble and you realize that there is this huge world out there, an awful lot of people haven't heard the term yet and it's not mainstream yet. It needs to be mainstream. There's a lot more work that we, we all need to do um, yeah. regardless of where you are in the world, but it is different um, with geography. Okay. And, and, and what about, um, I guess, you know, people like a numbers, statistics, a bit of data, what, what sort of, uh, how many people globally do we estimate might identify as as neurodiverse? So the the number that people used to think a lot of the time was one in seven people being neurodivergent, which is a lot higher than people realise. So that's not necessarily people that are um, diagnosed or self-identifying. It's just uh, just the number that people people believe to be the case. But now it's looking like that number is slightly more like one in five. So a really, really high proportion of our uh, population. Um, I think, I mean, I, my previous role before I started this company was head of data in a technology business. Um, so I, I love data. However, in this case, I think it's almost impossible to get to a point where we know that accurate number because no, our no. understanding of what being neurodivergent is, is just changing all the time, is evolving as a society. We um, are, you know, research is coming out all the time that's going to change the diagnostic criteria things like that so it's not I don't know that we'll ever get to an accurate figure the really important point is there are lots of us it's important because it's not a fraction of our of our population there are a lot of people yeah and, and I guess if you sort of take that and then you think of then people with family members with children that are neurodiverse as well you know if you're saying you know maybe 20 percent are neurodiverse maybe you know that sort of region and then you've got then the people that have got children with autism or, or whatever it might be as well that number probably goes up you know quite a bit higher you know so i don't you know making stuff up now is it like 30 40 percent you've got then of people that are either neurodiverse themselves or have very strong and close relationships with people um uh, that are neurodiverse. Right, okay. It's wow. a, it, that's wow, such wow, a good wow. point, though, to touch on that, Ben, actually. Well, one point is that a lot of, um, there is a genetic link with some um, neurological differences. So um, it's why a lot of older kind of, um, well, people of my age and above um, and even younger are getting diagnosed in later life. When you have children and you understand more about them, you realise that you are an ident un unidentified neurodivergent person. But also, as you said, you know, if you actually think about new neurodivergent people themselves, family members, friends, colleagues. This is why these conversations are so important because everybody is interacting with someone that's neurodivergent, whether they know it or not. So it's really impacting all of us and we all need to understand more about it. Yeah. And, and just if I sort of think of my experience when I was leading teams, um, I'm sort of thinking of a few examples now. I know I had somebody that was diagnosed with autism later in life um, and didn't really want people to know about that, you know, felt the stigma attached with that. Um, 
I had at least one person I'm thinking of who was identified as autistic and was happy to to share that with somebody. Uh, and then I had another guy uh, who uh, had never been diagnosed as autistic, but had a son that was then diagnosed as autistic and recognised a lot of the things that perhaps his son was doing about himself. I would say, actually, I'm probably an uh, undiagnosed with autism. So, yeah, so just you know, from my experience of older adults... Um, there yeah. was, you know, sort of the sort of folks like that. So, so do you think there's, um, do you think there is more people today that are neurodiverse, or is it that more people are educated about it and know what it is today? Because it it feels like that, that that there are more people that are neurodiverse certainly than when I was a kid at school. You know, it wasn't something that was talked about really. Oh, this is a controversial question, isn't it, Ben? Um, oh, one I've it? got very strong that's views me. on. With all, the, oh, with all the hard-hitting questions, that's me. <laughs> um, so, fact, there are more people being diagnosed or identifying as being neurodivergent now than there were decades ago. Um, my um, view on the situation is that that is because we have access to more information. We understand neurodiversity and neurological differences better than we did. Um, The gender bias in some of the research is being evened out. As we speak, it will take a long time. So it's allowing more people to understand themselves um, rather than there is something happening that is creating more neurodivergent people. That's not how I see this at all. Um, I think if you look back to... um, your childhood, if anyone looks back to their childhood, you probably would think about some people in your class that you maybe thought at the time, they're slightly unusual, they're quite different to me, they're behaving in this way that I don't understand. Um, But no one had that label of a particular condition. I can think of multiple people that I used to go to school with. Um, And those are the people that were undiagnosed neurodivergent at the time. And often those people were girls. um, And you know, women later in life, because there is, there's a big gender bias in research, especially relating to autism and ADHD. So when the conditions were labeled as those conditions, they researched primarily on boys because they thought they were boys conditions. So they reconfirmed their own bias about what autism and what ADHD was. And so it meant that they just didn't understand what it looked like for women and other people marginalized for their gender. So that is really catching up. Um, And so there is a lot of people that say no one really had a, an issue with the the diagnosis process and people being diagnosed when people were just diagnosing men and boys. But suddenly now women are being diagnosed and lots of people have got a big issue with it. Um, so it's just yet another thing that I think we need to apply the gender equity lens to. Um, yeah. And it's not just a gender issue. You find the same thing when you look at the intersection of race um, yeah. as well. So, so does... Um neurodiversity manifest itself differently in the different genders you know because you're saying you know they were looking in boys so so it does it look somewhat different in women than it does in men it can do so obviously it's really important to recognize that every single autistic or neurodivergent or adhd person is different like everybody is unique in their presentation mm. um However, there are some things that are generally can be generally different when you look at boys, girls, Um, but it's not a one size fits all at all. So um, crudely speaking, if you look at ADHD, so there are three types of ADHD as currently diagnosed in the UK. You have hyperactive impulsive, you have inattentive 
and you have combined. So uh, more typically, we've been diagnosing hyperactive impulsive, and that is how it, it more often presents when you are a boy. Um, whereas inattentive is a little bit more kind of daydreamy. You might see that person as being a bit ditzy, um, forgetful, not so kind of physically obvious. Um, and that is how a lot of girls um, present and therefore they get they have been missed uh, because a we haven't understood it and then therefore teachers don't understand it family members don't understand it uh, medical professionals don't understand it um so it is a real generalization and it's it's a, it's dangerous to be too this is how boys are this is how girls are this is maybe how non-binary people are um but there are some differences that we are still understanding and we need more research around okay okay in interesting so so, so I wonder if we could sort of move on, and, and I'd love to hear hear your, your your take on this. You know, there's 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 so much going on in the world at the moment. There's the economy. There's this. There's you know, uh, people have got a lot lot to think about, right? Um, why is it important that people are thinking about neurodiversity? What? Why is it important? It's for many reasons. Um, firstly, the point you made at the beginning about the number of people. Um, if we're not taking that into account, we are um, leaving people behind. We're not kind of making the most of their talent and their strengths. So if you look at autistic people, for example, um, based on a 2019 study um, by the Office of National Statistics in the UK, it showed that 16% of autistic people are in full-time employment, which is solo. And obviously there are some autistic people that can't work or perhaps choose not to work, but a huge proportion of that are people who want to be in work, but just aren't understood and supported to get into work. Um, and 22% of autistic people are in paid um, work at all. So these numbers are really low. It's, it's the um, kind of lowest employment rate of all disability groups. So we have huge talent pools of people. So people should be focusing on this to give these people opportun employment opportunities. But almost more importantly than that, these people can actually have huge value to organisations, to society. When you actually think about some of the people that have achieved some of the most incredible things, a lot of them are neurodivergent. Um, and I think sometimes we have this really negative perception of what being neurodivergent is all about. Whereas if you actually look at some of these people who have achieved amazing things, you've got someone like... Um, Greta Thunberg, who's autistic, who has, you know, ch really changed the world and got so many people thinking differently um, about kind of sustainability and climate change. You've got someone um, like Simone Biles, who is an incredible gymnast um, who has ADHD. Um, you have, you know, you have obviously huge names also in um, the world of business and entrepreneurs. Um, and I think that a lot of people don't recognize that. And so we, when we get people who come together, so neurodivergent and neurotypical people together, which is what I really advocate for in organizations. I'm not, this is not about a neurodivergent person is always the best person. This is about bringing together teams of people that have different ways of thinking. And when you bring them together, you get amazing like problem solving ability, creativity, innovation. Um, you know, neurodivergent people are known for um, attention to detail, analytical thinking, pattern spotting. So when you bring these people together, you achieve amazing things in organizations that you can't achieve either at the same pace or in the same way if you just have teams of people that are working and thinking in exactly the same way mm. no it's fascinating isn't it and, and that so 
you know, I was just sort of thinking particularly about the, the tech world. And I was I was at a conference yesterday, in fact, and we were just talking about um, the skills gap. You know, the, the tech world has had a really tough year, actually. There's been lots of redundancies. I've known lots of people that have lost their jobs, a lot of uh, a lot of. Um, uh, tech companies, big tech companies had to let a, let a lot of people go. Um, it sort of feels like we're maybe coming out of that. And and I think what we've all talked about in tech for ages, you know, that, that was a blip and there is a massive skills gap. And I was talking to somebody yeah. yesterday how they are trying to hire hundreds of people, literally hundreds. They can't, they, they are missing hundreds of people um, in certain geographies. Um, and so, you know, what you're saying here, you know, is, you know, in the tech world, there's this massive skills gap. There's this this big group of people with with great value to bring, and it feels like right. Well, there we go. You know, exactly. Th- 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 there's a match there that really helps our business and really helps our world and really helps those individuals as well. A hundred percent. And I-, I wish more people recognised that because it it could move the world forward in so many ways. I think to your point, there's so much going on in the world. If you could get neurodivergent people and neurodivergent thinkers and also working with neurotypical thinkers we can solve so many of the world's problems I believe but you have to create environments workplaces that work for everybody and this is why I have a little kind of issue with the term accommodations or adjustments that need to be put in place for organizations because then it just makes those people feel like outsiders and others and that things have to change for them whereas actually we should just be working to accommodate everybody um it's just that we've built things kind of with one brain type in mind if that makes sense um but you're absolutely right like there there is a solution here um to to skills gaps um and to some of the problems that organizations are facing so so can i can we talk about that that sort of um, term allowances, accommodations, that kind of stuff. So, so as I mentioned, you know, I'm, I managed a few people over the years. Um, and if I use my clumsy language to express what, and then you Please can tell do. me how I could do it. But so I needed, they needed to do things differently, right? Yeah. And they needed to do things differently that had an impact on uh some of the business things so if i take a really simple example there was one individual that i worked with um whose job was traveling to customer sites to to work with customers and was brilliant at doing that um could not do the tube you know that was sensory overload or or whatever the reasons were um so therefore needed to get a taxi around everywhere and also needed to go in first class in the train because they needed the space and again the, the sensory overload so uh, so that had a fiscal um, cost to it. Um, yeah. And th- this particular individual at the time didn't want um, anybody else to know that this was the ch- a challenge that they were having. So it put me in a quite an interesting situation where I was like, right, I now need to sign off on all these expenses <laughs> for this individual, yeah, yeah. knowing that I'm going to get a bit of flack. If, if I get found out, I'm going to get a bit of flack. The reasons are right, but there is a business cost to that. Um so I'm, I'm I'm just sort of trying to think how do we, how do you sort of position that think about that where we need to do things differently we don't want yeah. to make people feel excluded but at the same time there's like this one it was cost you know and we we need yeah, to yeah. manage the cost so how how would you sort of think about that sort of thing? Um, that's a really good example actually um, to to bring it to life for people um, and a a few things that I would say around that is. The first one is there are some instances where things have to be changed for people that will cost a bit more. And 
this is where I think the lines are a little bit blurred because the role that that person got, that travel would have been part of that role, right? So they took that role knowing that's what they're going to have to do. Um, and so if we're looking at it from a kind of a rational perspective, maybe that role wasn't necessarily right for that person in its entirety because of that travel is one way of looking at it. And maybe actually they'd be better suited to something else. Because it's not that all roles are suitable for all people, whether they're neurodivergent or not. It's really about making sure that you have the skills and the makeup within you to be really good at that thing. So there is that 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 side to consider. But the second thing is, actually, as you said, they were really good at their actual role, like not the travel part, but their actual role. And in some yeah. cases, you as a manager or as a business, you may be willing to spend a little bit more on something like travel or equipment or whatever it might be, because you get the benefit of that person's great skills in that area. Mm. Um, and that's a bit of a trade-off and something that you just have to work through and figure out if you if you want to do. Um, mm. And so there's that side to consider. And then the third thing I would say is I always stress to people that when you're thinking about things like this, think about it in comparison to somebody who has a physical disability. So if you had someone who was really, really good at that, but they couldn't use the tube because they were a wheelchair user. And as we know, it's not accessible for everybody in London. It's only you have to go to certain stations and it's really not what it should be. You may have had to have paid for a taxi. Would you, your reaction to that cost be the same when you were thinking about that person who's a wheelchair user as when you're thinking about the person who's autistic? And usually if people are honest with themselves, they can get their heads around a physical disability and their needs far easier to someone who's got an invisible disability. You obviously had the added complication in that situation where the person didn't want to say, so you have that as well. But even if you're just thinking about it from your own perspective, um, I was on a podcast recently with someone called Orion Kelly, who's brilliant, and he talks about mind ramps. And he's like, that's how people need to think about these things. They're just ramps that exist in our mind, um, but they're not any less valid um, than, uh, you know, a ramp, well, a ramp that's needed, sorry, for our mind, they're not any less valid than a ramp that is needed for a wheelchair user. So okay. it's not an exact answer. There's no exact science to it, but I think it just highlights the complexity around it and why I think organizations really need to understand the nuance um, and the need for equity. So, you know, we are we're moving in a positive way, most people, most organizations to realizing that this isn't about equality, it's about equity. And I'm talking about society in general here. But equity, when it comes down to a physical disability, or something that somebody can see, is very different to equity that that is for an invisible difference that somebody can't understand. Um, mm. And one of the things that I, I know I've talked for a little while here, but one of the things I wanted to mention, because we, we spoke about this when we were just before we started recording, was one of the most, um, one of the things that I think should happen to make recruitment more inclusive for neurodivergent people is one of the things that makes people feel most uncomfortable. And this is a really good one to talk about when you think about equity, because for a lot of neurodivergent people, an interview process can be incredibly stressful. Um, you know, we often have differences in our speed of processing information and the way that we process information. And there's a whole host of, 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 things that go on for a neurodivergent person in an interview that don't exist for a lot of neurotypical people. And so one of the things that you can do as an organization to make things better is to give candidates interview questions in advance. And that for most people, when I run training, I've got people kind of 
all on board with the positives of neurodiversity. It's great. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I say that and they just go, oh, no, I couldn't do that. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not giving anyone questions in advance because we're so used to interviewing in a way that we do. But I always say, like, are you interviewing somebody for a role that's going to require really quick thinking, thinking on the spot in a pressured environment um, where they don't understand, you know, a lot of the context and they're with people that they don't know? Like for the majority of roles, no. For some, yeah. But for the majority of roles, no. So why do we feel the need to test for those skills? You need to be using an interview to understand someone's experience, to test the skills that they're actually going to use in their job. And most of the time, sending them questions in advance is, is just not going to do that. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, you know, it's a, a difficult area, especially when there are costs involved, as you've said, or... Um, kind of changes that might impact some other people so if you're doing something that's maybe going to negatively impact somebody else it's difficult but it's just really about kind of understanding the bigger picture yeah and 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 I did um because you you did you did a post on LinkedIn saying about that about sharing interview questions and so I I think I had I think I had firstly a bit of an emotional reaction probably like a lot of people do and you go what like what yeah Um, (laughs) But so when I when I reflected on it, and I because I did a lot of recruitment uh, over my career, um, and a lot of the type of people I hired for were were customer facing technical roles. Yeah. Um, and so to a certain extent, I think the ability to to think on your feet in a customer face to face situation it is an important skill. Um, but I also think a lot of but but you could maybe test for that in a in a slightly different way, you know. So you could say, right, well, actually, lots of these questions, like, you know, can you give an example where you were in some kind of conflict and you had to resolve that conflict, you know, and how did you do? Because that was you know something we had to do with customers all the time, you know, that yeah. that kind of stuff. You know, that could be prepared for. Um, didn't need to be thinking about the feet, and I'd probably get a richer, fuller, more natural example. Where my head then started to go is, oh, would we then just get to now people are writing scripts, you know, and just reading off the script. So, you you know, it's harder to have a conversation because somebody's written it out and now yeah. they're just, you know, there was a time. And so I'd, I'd be really interested to, I mean, has there been any research done on on the, I guess, when you, if, if people start to do this or have you, have you done this and then gone, well, how did it actually work out? Were there any other things that sprang up or did it work well? So I don't know of any research. That's not to say that there isn't any out there, but what I do know is anecdotal stories from people. Um, and on yeah. that post that you mentioned, I wrote on LinkedIn, I got quite a big reaction to it. And a lot of people sharing that they had started doing this or they'd been doing this for a few years. And actually a lot of people saying it had worked really well um, because you get people who are just a lot more comfortable. um, And you may get people who, yeah, read off of a script and it becomes very unnatural. Um, But you will also get people who just feel an awful lot more comfortable to be able to kind of share their experience and tell their stories. Um, And I think, just to be really clear I think if you start sending interview questions out in advance it's not like it's not going to mean everything is perfect you will still get people who will not perform very well in that environment you'll still get people maybe you might go from having people that you know would have been terrible if you hadn't and be thinking on their feet to then kind of learning how to answer that question so well that they overdo their experience so you will always get that but I think what happens at the moment, and in my experience when I used to do hiring, is 
I mean, I made mistakes in hiring all the time. And I definitely hired people who are really good at interviewing, really good at selling themselves, not very good at the job. But we're actually okay with accepting that broadly as managers, because that's just the way that we do it. But if we flipped it on its head, I think we'd have less situations where we'd make wrong hires. We'd still have the situation where we'd make wrong hires, but we'd have less of those, I think, if we give people the chance to prepare. No, and I think that's a really good idea, isn't it? We are, you do not want to hire people that are good at interviews unless their job is to be interviewed all the time. You you want people that are good at doing the thing, whatever that is, an architect, a developer, a salesperson, whatever it might be. Um, So you want people that are good at that, not not people that are professional interviewers, because they're they're probably the ones that are least loyal, that are hopping around, that are maybe having trouble and causing difficulties at organisations. Now, Jess, I'm conscious that we're, we're we're ripping through time, but before we finish, I was just wondering, for those, I guess what we've talked about, are, maybe are people that are in more leadership positions, you know, that can influence expenses, allowances or accommodations, whatever term we might want to use or not use or change the interview process, that kind of stuff. What about for people in individual contributor roles? What, um, in terms of if people wanted to um, be more cognizant of neurodiversity and do more practical things that could be helpful, what what could what could people do one of the things i always say the first place to start with this is to create an environment in your team or you as an individual as a safe person and a safe team or a safe organization and one of the best ways you can do that is to just start talking about neurodiversity so not like right we're going to sit down in a team meeting and i want to know who's neurodivergent but just you know you want to just start talking about it as a thing that you care about so you know you could say oh i listen to this fascinating podcast about neurodiversity and um i learned this so oh, did you know about it like didn't even know what the term was have you heard of it or i watched this documentary or you know just something just bring up the conversation and start talking about it or if it does impact you personally bring it up at work talk about it if you're comfortable to and what i found in my experience is the more that you talk about these things the more that people feel safe and that they are able to share with you i mean you've got some great stories ben so you clearly made yourself a safe person without maybe even realizing or knowing much about the topic and i think it's really important for people to recognize that you don't have to be an expert in neurodiversity to be able to make people feel safe to be themselves you know we're never going to truly understand what it's like for every neurodivergent person but you can talk about it and you can be open and you will then get people who open up with you and if they do what you want to do is you want to seek to understand them a bit more don't make any assumptions about who they are because you've met an autistic person before or you've managed someone who's dyslexic before ask them but critically ask them about it and talk about neurodiversity in a positive way so you don't want it to be this negative dreary awful don't say sorry there's nothing to be sorry about you just want to be positive about neurodiversity and make people realize that they will be accepted for who they are Um, So I'd say that's such a big, it's not like a practical, I'm just going to go and tick this off my list. It's a little bit more of a mindset and a way that you interact with people. But I would say that is really, really important. And the other thing that I always say to people that they should do um, for managers, but you can do this just as a colleague when you're working with different people, is ask people, what can I do to support you to perform at your best? So you take the conversation away from, are you neurodivergent? What accommodations do you need? But you open it up and people can say, oh, actually, I've got ADHD and I'd find it really, really useful if you help me break down this huge project I've got into smaller tasks. Like, I can't, my brain doesn't work like that. Um, but you also make it okay for somebody to bring something else about their identity to say, oh, actually, this is something that I 
would need can can we do this or this is a part of my life that actually is important for you to know about so I think like those two things on their own sound kind of broad but can actually have such a big impact I mean I've got things coming out my ears in terms of the real practical things that you can offer people you know how to run inclusive meetings would be one uh, making sure you're always putting agendas in making sure you're setting expectations um, sharing information with people in advance don't send meetings that just say catch up tell people specifically what it is so you're not creating loads of anxiety in the run-up tons of stuff like that but actually if you just start talking about it people will open up and they will tell you what they need Brilliant. I'm just. I always like to jot down some notes as I go through uh, all these po- these podcasts when I learn so much. Yeah, and and I I think sort of f- from my perspective. Um, so I am a white man, able-bodied, neurotypical, heterosexual. Can I do um, a call out, Ben? Because you told me I could. Yes. Yeah. You're yeah. Do, you're, do. you're not. You're not able-bodied. You're well. You, you're non-disabled would be the preferred term. Okay. 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 Non-disabled. Um, so, so from my, my experience, and, and I'm not by, by nature, the most empathetic person um, compared to many, <laughs> many other people that I know. But I sort of, my experience is if you, if I exercise a bit of curiosity about people and try and understand their perspective a little bit, then that helps grow my empathy a little bit. Um, and then if I grow my empathy a little bit, then like a bit of a worm kind of eats at me and I feel like I've got to do something like <laughs> I've got a bit of empathy. And then, and then that makes me take a little bit of action and it might yeah. not be the best, but at least it's, at least it's something at least, at least, at least I'm trying. And I think sometimes people, because, because of, for example, think things like, uh, language. So when I said able-bodied, I thought that was a pretty good term I was using there. Um, so <laughs> to not, we're moving you know, all the time with language, so it's just yeah. evolving. Yeah, and and so I think people therefore sometimes get a little bit worried about, and and would therefore rather not discuss some of these topics yeah. for fear of getting it wrong, for fear of coming across clumsy, or for fear of causing offence when they don't mean to. Um, but from my perspective. I've just we've just we've just got to do it, haven't we, really? And try and do it with a bit of kindness from every side um, to try and move things forward a little bit. Oh, yes. I mean, couldn't have said that better myself. Uh, ultimately, a lot of this is is around kindness and just kind of accepting people for who they are. Um, and it, you're right about language. Some people just shy away from not even just language and terminology, which is a huge factor in this. Also, I feel like people think and workplaces feel like they need to have got to the end of their journey with neuroinclusion to be able to even do much with it. And it's an ongoing mm. process that there is no end goal because, mm. you know, things are changing all of the time. There's so much for us to understand. And in reality, there are so many different things that organizations can do differently. So it's really the one of some of the most positive things organizations can do is just put out like a statement of intent. Like we aim to be a neuroinclusive employer. We're not perfect. We are trying. We want you to be able to talk to us um you we want you to be open and be able to say when things aren't working out for you or we were using the wrong terminology but just that statement of intent and a real you know kind of create creation of a safe space by doing that is really important and that's so much more important than i've done all of this i've changed all these processes i've made all of these these changes um mm. and i absolutely love what you're saying about you so i have a real thing about the word empathy and the need that people think that they have to be empathetic to be inclusive and i actually think it's much more around 
like you said, curiosity, compassion. We're never going to truly, empathy is understanding someone else's perspective or where they're coming from or what their experience is. I can never understand that for a black person. You know, I can never understand that for a, um, a physically disabled person. I can, you know, never understand that for someone in the queer community, but I can be compassionate. I can accept what they're telling me as their lived experience. Um, and that's what I think people need to do. Mm. Right. We've talked for a long time. Um, Jess, could you just wrap up key takeaways? What would be the key the key takeaways um, uh, that you'd like to share as we wrap up? What, what I've already said, but just to really reaffirm it, to be honest, if you take anything from this, go into your organization, start talking about neurodiversity, start being curious with people about neurodiversity and be neuroaffirmative. So be positive about neurodiversity. You want to talk about it in a positive way. Um, and, and exactly as you said, when you ended on this, be curious. So you just want to ask people about it. You want to ask people what they know about it. If someone shares that they are neurodivergent, you want to understand what the impact is for them, but you want to be strengths-based. So how does that present for you does it bring you any you know strengths at work like how does that how does that apply to you or is there things that are a little bit challenging as a result of the way that we're working can we change anything up so be curious be positive and just start talking about it brilliant brilliant and, and for me you know the things that that just jumped out in addition to what you were talking about there the, the number of people you know so we were talking about maybe around the area of 20 percent, and then the number of people that are then close to you, you know, so you, the, 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 either children or parent or whatever it might be. So, so that was fascinating. And then the other thing was that, that just sort of hadn't really clicked was that, that percentage of people that aren't working, you know, and we've got this yeah. real skills gap with some people that have got some great skills and we might need to figure out how we do work a little bit differently in order to make that sort of work out really well. But that was a really interesting thing for me as well. Um, where where can people find you? So if people have been sparked, you've sparked that people's interest in this. Where can people find you? What is it you do? So yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm Jess Meredith on LinkedIn. Um, or I would love for you to follow Differing Minds on we're on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. Um, or check out our website, which is differingminds.co.uk. Um, and let us know if you need any neurodiversity training, any keynote talks um any consulting or any neurodiversity services brilliant that is brilliant well jess thank you so much it's been such an interesting conversation so thank you so much for, for taking the time to be with us oh thanks for having me ben i've really enjoyed it so there we have it thanks for listening please do subscribe to the podcast and rate the show it really helps spread the word check out our technical storytelling program to help build your influencing and leadership skills.